Hi folks, between us recording this podcast and it being released, Tony Selby sadly passed away, so we'd just like to commemorate the memory of the fantastic Tony Selby, who played such an iconic part in this series of episodes. Silence in the court. It's time for the closing statements on this trial of Trial of a Time Lord. I am the Inquisitor who has called this Farago of Justice, and for the prosecution, or possibly the defence, is... Renna. I don't know why I rolled my eyes. So, uh, this time, we are finally discussing both uh, the final two episodes of Trial of a Time Lord, sometimes called The Ultimate Foe, and really also wrapping up and discussing trial as a whole experience. And that is really what is going on with the ultimate foe. There is no episodic story now. This is purely trial scenes. Now, there is a sort of in-courtroom, out-of-courtroom action to some degree. Yeah, it continues to play with the device used to present the episodic stories but turns them into actual MacGuffins for the narrative. The meta levels are are colliding. Yes, it is a strange pair of episodes. The plot description of The Ultimate Foe is just someone trying to describe a Doctor Who story they saw once 30 years ago. No, 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 no. It's someone trying to describe a Doctor Who story that someone else dreamed. So, throughout the trial, we've had this intimation that there there is more at play here. There is tampered Matrix scenes, things that aren't as the Doctor remembers them, that the reason the Doctor's there is mysterious and spurious. And now it's time to finally hear the verdict on the Doctor's trial and discover just what's been going on with all of these mysteries, except that, in fact, you're not going to get any kind of sane or satisfying answer. Yes. Um, yeah. Basically what happens is the master suddenly pops up on the Matrix screen to tell everyone... In fairness, fairly predictable. I think the master showing up is like the most like least surprising part of this story, right? I, I think that the master showing up is quite surprising. I mean, it's impossible to say, but if I didn't know that the master was in it, I think I would have been surprised that the master popped up. So I guess obviously I've been primed by having watched a lot of master stories fairly recently. But also, um, I think it's just because I know Robert Holmes likes the master. He was writing a lot of this stuff. Yes, and, it, and indeed Robert Holmes intended to have a much more mastery finale. Uh, yes, uh, but as we will discuss, there are reasons why that ultimately didn't happen. I, I think what it comes down to is in every other master story, you get at least like three scenes of a man in a bad mask going <laughs> in the shadows. Right, I see. <laughs> yeah, at no point does the hand of an unseen person pull a lever. Exactly, exactly. It's just like suddenly and completely out of nowhere in this already very strange season of Doctor Who, and I think partially the strangeness of the season would distract you. Just just suddenly the the screen that the Time Lords have been watching everything just turns on and there's the master. Uh, who, who is apparently inside the Matrix. Who then, yeah, exposits that he is speaking from within the Matrix reveals that the Valyard 
is in fact the Doctor. I don't think we need to discuss that any further. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That seems fairly straightforward. Move on. And that the Matrix scenes have, in fact, been tampered with, which is possible as evidenced by the fact that he is, in fact, there in the Matrix right now. Hello, look, I'm doing it as we speak. The entire trial has basically been a sham. Shocking. Shocking. Obviously, significant allegations. So the Inquisitor calls the Keeper of the Matrix, who has the key of Rassilon... I've been missing a good of Rassilon. Right, but but this is the key of Rassilon, which in The Deadly Assassin was a big rod that the president had. Now, we haven't covered on the show that in The Invasion of Time, we're then told that the key of Rassilon has been lost since the time of Rassilon. And the prop that was the key of Rassilon in The Deadly Assassin is now called the Rod of Rassilon. Right. And now we get here where the key of Rassilon is literally just a key, like just a normal sized, normal key worn by the Keeper of the Matrix around his neck. What I would say is I never really get a sense of how long he's passing on Gallifrey between like visits to Gallifrey. And so it seems perfectly plausible to me that, you know, OK, so this is a few hundred years later or whatever, and they just decide to start calling something the key of Rassilon, even though it's not... Yeah, th- that's actually... That was my first thought as well. You know, enough time has passed on Gallifrey that they've already managed to forget, half-remember and re-mythologise their own history. Which sounds perfectly plausible to me. I'm going to press the LARP klaxon here, but uh, uh, more than once for LARP, I have written historical documents in character, um, and indeed... That's really interesting because if you write things in an out-of-character style, people can treat them as authoritative. Whereas if you write them in a very clearly, this is from the perspective of a person in the world, that person can be wrong or have their own agendas or biases or perspectives, uh, which I think is really good. Uh, And in fact, I think a mistake that is often made with Doctor Who canon is that we take things that are said by characters in character as being absolute facts of the canon. That couldn't possibly be the case, she says, looking at TARDIS wiki. Like, their reach exceeds their grasp, and basically, they keep losing control of their own history. What you've described there is the relationship of people who run Doctor Who to Doctor Who? Yes. As with a lot of these cult shows that have kind of grown these huge fandoms and lived on in infamy, they're things no one would set out to create. They necessarily became what they did by growing beyond any any one person's design. Right. I know there are people credited with creating Doctor Who, but in some sense, I don't think Doctor Who has any single person who defined what it is. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about JNT, Eric Sayward, and Robert Holmes. And certainly, this period, you can say, is largely down to their design. But then, if you look to the McCoy era or you look to the Hartnell era, well, that's got nothing to do with JNT. Well, I won't say nothing, but that's really not the purview. And if you look at who mattered in the Hartnell era, well, certainly there are parts where it's mostly or almost wholly their design, but those are only parts, and as soon as you move away from them, people can control a little corner, but they can never control the whole thing. It's like the surrealist game of Exquisite Corpse, where, where you draw a bit of a person and then you fold it over and the next person draws a bit and folds it over. Uh, which is interesting because actually in a, in a microcosm, that's the analogy I was going to make with the situation with who wrote The Ultimate Foe. It's why I think Chris Chibnall's choices are exactly in keeping 
with the canon. Well, there was a tweet I saw recently that was posted just after the time was children aired, where they some they were like summing up the fandom controversy for somebody who doesn't understand it. Fans are up in arms because Chris Chibnall has chosen to override a piece of Time Lord lore laid down by Robert Holmes in a story in 1976 in favour of building upon some arbitrary Time Lord lore laid down by Robert Holmes in a previous episode six months earlier in 1976. <laughs> 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 yes, yes. That, that is, in fact, how Doctor Who do. Do you remember this place, Doctor? Next to the Panopticon, the Chamber of the Matrix, the repository of all Time Lord knowledge, a databank of every Time Lord consciousness, living and dead, every experience and every memory, the lived history of our race. I, I destroyed a lot of things, but not this trove of secrets. This is what started it all. Anyway, so we should probably return right. to... Yeah, okay, so it got distracted. <laughs> the actual events of the ultimate foe. The, po- the point being that the key of Rassilon is now a, a literal key because right. the Time Lords have forgotten what the key of Rassilon is and made a new one or something. I like, incidentally, that the Doctor almost is outside this process because he doesn't hang out on Gallifrey, a sort of inherently stultifying yeah. process. Although although he doesn't go like, that's not the key of Rassilon. I've seen the key of Rassilon. It doesn't look like that. Well, no, but, you know, he's had a busy day. Um, they, and they're able to open the seventh door, which allows them to physically enter and leave the Matrix. As opposed to having to be strapped to a table and enter the Matrix in a more sort of like Wachowski siblings way. And so in order to clear his name and prove his innocence, having learned from the Master that mysterious goings-on and tamperings are afoot within the mechanisms of the Matrix itself, the Doctor must plunge into the mysterious realm of the Matrix. Hang on, have we heard this somewhere before? This time, though, he's accompanied by a companion because Mel has arrived along with Savalon Glitz, who've been brought through time to assist in the Doctor's defence. So when the Doctor enters the Matrix, of course, he grabs someone who he can trust, someone he's going to work with in the future... Sabalon, hang on, this can't be right. It's utterly perplexing. Why doesn't he take Mel? Why doesn't he take Mel? It just makes no sense. Glitz happens to be standing within arm's reach, which is the only explanation. And even that isn't much of an explanation. Like, Glitz just seems like a liability. I've got to say, I'm not objecting to more Glitz. Glitz then immediately just becomes the pawn of his enemies. Yes, as was exceedingly predictable. So, the Doctor is back in the Matrix... There's no crocodile this time. Instead, there's a funfair come paper mill. Yeah, it's like Victorian London, but also there's a sort of weird funfair. It's called the Fantasy Factory, and there's like calliope music and big light-up signs, and there's a clerk called Mr. Popplewick, and you go through a door, and then there's the junior Mr. Popplewick and the senior Mr. Popplewick, and they're the same person. And then the doctor's on a beach, and hands come out of the... Well, first of all, the doctor looks in a barrel, and hands come out of the barrel and try to drown him. And he escapes from that, and then he gets shot with a harpoon, and then he's on a beach. Then hands emerge from the sand and drown him in the sand, and it's just the deadly assassin, episode three, all over again! 
It's less funny this time. <laughs> it's not fully committing to crocodile mania. It's like Robert Holmes literally on his deathbed <laughs> was like <laughs> the greatest thing I've ever Matrix time! Yeah, it's time! <laughs> to be honest, to be fair, I wish we had more of this kind of thing. Like the 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 thirteenth doctor in the Matrix recently. Did she have to wrestle a crocodile? Was, she, was anyone shot with a harpoon? No. What's going on with that? I did quite like the fancy factory. I thought that was quite an interesting visual. Anyway, Robert Holmes, having been tasked with drawing together all of the threads that have surrounded and interrupted and mangled the stories of this season of Doctor Who, to give them a payoff that makes sense of them, that ties it all in a bow, and having embarked on this grand explanation by plunging us into a cavalcade funfair of chaos and mystery. Bizarre, inexplicable mystery. Which, which in fairness, what a setup. You know, what a setup. Leaving us on this cliffhanger where the veil yard cackles as the doctor is dragged under the sands of a beach in, in what is actually a really impressively done cliffhanger. Ha having set all of this up and tasked with all of this payoff, then proceeded to die without giving anyone I any mean, answers. what a move. What a power move. <laughs> just, just, just straight up. To now, that is not quite true. He did leave behind some notes sufficient yeah. for someone like his close partner, Eric Sayward, he, to finish. He basically handed in the script for episode 13 and then wrote in the margin, I have a wonderful resolution, which this margin is too narrow to contain. <laughs> and then died. <coughs> um, and then Eric Sayward had to fix it. Unfortunately. So he did. He did. He did. So he he did. did. Without Holmes' notes. He did. He, yeah. He sat down and working from Robert Holmes' notes, he wrote the denouement that brought it all together and tied it off this plot involving the master in the Matrix trying to get one over on all of Gallifrey, not just the Doctor, but all of Gallifrey. And then he fell out with J&T and he quit. Because J&T didn't like the way he'd ended the story. Uh, and, and Eric Sayward possibly unwilling to change it because in Robert Holmes' memory it was what Robert Holmes had intended. Anyway, so he quit. It was the final straw. And because he held the copyright to his episode 14 script... The one based on Robert Holmes' notes. J&T then had to get Pip and Jane to write episode 14, but they weren't allowed to see any of the previous work that had been done on it. Which is really very special. Like, I... I, I... Because of the way that Say would quit, they couldn't work from Holmes's notes. Right. They just had nothing. And so they... Well, infamously, they wrote an awful lot of gobbledygook. There, there is a megabyte modem, there are mazes, there is the, the infamous catharsis of spurious morality. Um, there are a lot of words being used in ways that are not what they mean. I just do not remember the last episode at all. Like, it, it, it's like this is being made up line by line. The big significant change is that it stops being a master story and becomes a Veilyard story. The Veilyard becomes the primary antagonist, and that is maybe the biggest upheaval from what would have been. And like, you can see why they do that, because ultimately the Veilyard has kind of been the main villain. I would argue it makes a lot more sense. Yes. 
I would argue that the story does not, in fact, need the master at all. I would have considered rewriting episode 13 as well. I don't think they had the time. No, exactly. I don't think they did. I mean, the fact that we learn that uh, what truly happened to Perry, which appears to have been something they made up on the cuff. Perry was really meant to be dead, and then JNT got cold feet. So, so, so it's certainly true that they just didn't have much time to re- rewrite it or reconceive the... And I think... It's, I actually like the Veilliard being the villain scenes, I, I have to say. Yeah, no, no, I think that, in fact, the Veilliard being the villain is necessary for Trial to work. They sort of identify that the Veilliard is by far the most interesting element in this whole plot. Well, you say that, and yet, actually, until Robert Holmes wrote episode 13, the Veilliard was just a time war. No, I know, but like the point is, as soon as you introduce this bizarre element in episode 13... Having said that the Master doesn't need to be here, I- I'm actually going to take that back, because I think the fact that the Master is the one that turns up and tells us this makes the Valyard more significant. And in fact, the Master's motivation here is that the Doctor needs to win because he can contend with the Doctor as a rival but he can't deal with the idea of the Valyard as a rival. Right. Uh, this is why I think... The, because the, the Master is in some ways a mirror of the Doctor, the Valyard is, in, is almost like the mirror's mirror. So when, when we did Deadly Assassin, we talked about the tragedy of the Master being that he, he keeps trying to be himself and failing, and all he ever manages to actually do is mirror the Doctor. Right. In that respect it's really interesting that what he absolutely can't countenance is the idea that the doctor would become like the master right right i'm gonna go out on a a bit of a limb here and posit that the the true anxiety that the valyard represents for the master Mm -hmm. is an identity crisis right that if the valyard exists if if the Doctor not only exists and the Master keeps falling into the trap of just mirroring the Doctor, if the Doctor is also capable of becoming an ultimate villain, what even is the Master for? Well, he's redundant, isn't he? There, that's my big thing here, that the real reason that the Master needs the Doctor to triumph over the Valyard is because if the Valyard can exist, the Master has no personhood. He, he isn't anything. He's a nothing. He's a spook. This is an independent inquiry appointed by the High Council to investigate serious charges... Madam, I know I've followed the trial with great interest and indeed amusement, but now I must intervene for the sake of justice. Justice? Pay no attention, madam. He has no concept of what justice is. He'd see me dead tomorrow. Gladly, Doctor. But I'm not prepared to countenance a rival. Now, I, I want to talk a bit about what I think the Trial of the Whole says about the essence of Who itself, but maybe we should drill into the Valyard a bit first. What do you think? So, the Valyard, uh, controversial character, I think it is safe to say. I don't see why he would be. I went on the forums to solicit some opinions. Right. And I, and I thought I stirred up a hornet's nest when I remarked that Earthshock wasn't very good. Earthshock isn't very good. Correct. I, I I didn't say anything controversial about trial of a time lord. I literally just asked people what they thought. Right. Well, that was the that was the controversy. <laughs> this issue. It's, trial is not a thing one can simply. 
I, I can't sum up the discussion that emerged. People wrote like full on think pieces. It, it, this makes it, sense to me. An absolutely fascinating discussion. If you are on the Gallifrey based forums, first of all, what are you doing with your life? Secondly, go and find this thread and read it. It's some incredible fan debate. So I literally could just sit here and read that thread and it would be a great podcast. It's, it's a really interesting reading. I can't sum up half of what was said but one of the main debates that emerged was is the valley out a brilliant idea or an awful idea right i think the valley out is a brilliant idea i think the valley out is a brilliant idea. i mean he's essentially the jungian shadow of the doctor right i don't know that much about jungian shadows but from what i understand about what jungians think the shadow no is... he's the reverse like because instead of it being a dark half of the Doctor that the Doctor has to take into himself and make peace with. It, it's the opposite. The Doctor is currently whole and there's this danger that at some point he's going to split off into this thing. No, that's true. But I would argue that to a degree that's because it is saying that the potential for the Valyard is latent within the Doctor. But what I would say is it's not It's not Jungian in the sense that it's not that the Valyard is latent within the Doctor because the Doctor hasn't addressed or confronted this aspect of himself. Right, yes, got you. Which, which is what would make it Jungian. But, but actually, this is very almost anti-Jungian in that it's acknowledging and making peace with that aspect of it instead of opposing it is is, is the threat it's being the season 22 doctor that's the, the, the that's the bad idea it's the doctor that's willing to be not very nice that is in fact the danger now it's interesting of course the way that the the, the sort of modern show has played with these ideas while never saying and i think probably never will say the word Valyard. I believe you're wrong. I'm sure Stephen Moffat put Valyard in the script. Oh, really? Ah, uh, possibly in Twice Upon a Time? Yes. Why? Where? Um, I, I know it's in there. It's in like a list of the Doctor's aliases or something. I think the the testimony name it as one of his names or something. Ah, the, in, it, what, it, it's, his name is the Shadow of the Valyard. There you go. So there we are. Which is... Now, you want to talk Jungian? <laughs> the Doctor as the shadow the, of the, the Valiad. <laughs> so, so, in fact, yes, yeah, Stephen Moffat did get a Valiad riff into the modern show. Um, ah, and actually the name of the Doctor as well. I don't remember it in Name of the Doctor. Oh, the name of the Doctor, yes. I, I do remember that. And then, of course, we have the Dream Lord, where every fan watching... The Amy's choice spent the whole episode waiting for the name to be said and it wasn't. Right, but I think there's a strong argument that Amy's choice is a Valyard story, even though it's not a yeah, Valyard I mean, story. It it is, right? It just is. Yes. I mean it it's the closest thing I think that the modern show has come to a Valyard story. I would argue that uh the whole Time Lord Victorious thing, and actually also the War Doctor. And the and the Metacrisis Doctor. And the Metacrisis Doctor, uh, especially actually the Metacrisis Doctor in some ways, are all playing with this. It's so weird to me that we've recorded this entire podcast thus far in, in what I think is a really weird time for the show, in that the, the, the sort of the penny of Timeless Children has dropped, but we've yet to actually really appreciate the ripples it'll actually make on the show. Yeah, uh, the Doctor has blown up Scarrow, but the Time War hasn't yet started. Right. 
I, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Remembrance of the Daleks. Remembrance of the Daleks has this very famous conversation about time will tell. Right. I look forward to seeing it, but I haven't yet. There's a quote from a user called the Opera Ghost on the forum. The revelation that the Doctor is facing an evil future version of himself was the first time anything like that had been done on the show. The only suggestion of a Doctor-to-be beforehand was the Watcher, and he was more walking papier-mâché than a character. We're so used to War Doctors and Joe Martin Doctors and such these days, but at the time, the Valyard revelation was mind-blowing. Like We've just exemplified what he's saying there, that we just put the Valyard into this category of sort of semi-doctors, but he's the first semi-doctor. I know I disagree. I mean, I think what I was saying is that actually all such stories since happen in the shadow of the Valyard, as it were. Yes. It's my opinion that basically um, this is where the question of who the Doctor is is first truly asked, and that question will not go away until twice upon a time. We had then one season where I would say that question was resolved before it was then re-asked more broadly than ever before. Right. It's almost like the Doctor can't get away from that question. But I don't think that question had been asked prior to the Valyard. I mean, you have the question in the, like, the Hartnell era of who is this character because he's a new character and he's mysterious. Sure, but... But that's not the same thing. Yes, he has no identity crisis. Yeah, exactly. But the Sixth Doctor literally is playing out an identity crisis on his screen right now. Did Patrick Troughton not have any of this? No, not really. It's interesting because it's the first regeneration. So they didn't play yeah. at all with... It was just like, yep, yeah, same guy. But his companions are very questioning of who he is. Right. Whereas he's very much like, yep, I'm the Doctor. Hello, I'm still the Doctor. Stop questioning it. Right. Which is because in some sense he's trying to bring the audience with him. Yeah, of course, yeah. But after the Valyard, questioning who the Doctor is never stops. Now, think about Battlefield and the, the presence of the Merlin Doctor who is in the Doctor's future... Even something like that is in the shadow of the Valyard. Yes. Um, the shape of things are come. Before we move on again, I want to read the second half of that quote from the Opera Ghost. And of course, and this is seldom picked up on, it's essential to the Christmas carol motif of the story. We see the Doctor in the past, present and future, and we get a glimpse of what he'll become if he doesn't change his ways. It simply wouldn't work without the Valyard being the Doctor. Yes, I, I, I want to expand that a little further. I, I would say it's interesting because does the Valyard to a degree reflect anxieties about what the show could become? In the way that we've discussed that the past, present and future episode of the trial thus far, it reflects the future of the Doctor, but also the future of the show. What is being expressed with the Valyard about what they feared the show might become? So I don't think that's what's been consciously done, but it is sort of the logical corollary to what is consciously being done. Right, exactly. Which is funny because trial then ends on exactly what Doctor Who shouldn't be if you follow through the sort of logical implications of the meta argument. In, in the sense that... In the sense that this is Valyard Who. 
Right, exactly. And as we've noted, of course... <laughs> I mean, n not in the sense that every Who since is a dark imitation of good Doctor Who. I mean, I'm sure you can find some fan to argue that since season 23, Doctor Who's never been good again. But And of course, I think as you noted to me, uh, within the story... The Valyard's existence seems to confirm the Doctor's own failure. So the Valyard is the ultimate testimony for his own case. Prove that the Doctor is on a path that the Time Lords need to stop. Well, the Valyard exists. But, but that doesn't really hold up because they're Time Lords and they're dealing in potential futures. So it doesn't quite, it doesn't truly hold out. No, and of course... Um... The trial isn't honest anyway, so... Yeah, and I think this also indicates the other big point that all the fan talk comes back to, which is that none of this makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ultimately, the Valyard concept, even if you like it, is presented in a way that is borderline incoherent. The trial is not a trial. The evidence doesn't make sense as evidence. Even if you like the concepts, the actual way it's being executed on, much like the techno babble of Pip and Jane, all I can think of is that famous Princess Bride quote, right? you keep using these words, I don't think it means what you think it means. Right, exactly, yes. It's not a trial. It's not evidence. That There are no conclusions. The concepts are good, but nothing we see here actually being enacted bears any resemblance to the concepts they supposedly presenting. I would like to make the case that fundamentally, and I think I said this to you at the time as I was watching, that trial is a select key for the whole of Doctor Who. All of Doctor Who is contained here. It encapsulates the very soul of what it can be, from its highs to its lows. I would definitely be quite content in saying that this is the most metafictional Doctor Who has ever been. Beyond even how much it's intended to be metafictional. Right, and I think it reflects the degree to which it's gone beyond just simply being a television show. It's sort of a ph phenomenon. I don't think I'm comfortable saying that Trial is good or bad. It, it's often said of Dark Shadows that nobody would have made Dark Shadows by intent. Right, right, and yet it exists. And yet it exists and it's brilliant. And it would never be brilliant in the way it's brilliant if it had been designed. And I think ultimately, I was really worried before I watched the trial. I thought I was just going to hate it. And it just wasn't true at all. Yes, and then you watched it in 48 hours. Yeah, and that's because there's just something very compelling about it. I mean, I will say this also. The stories inside the framing device are all pretty good who. Yeah, they're more or less well told. Even Mind Warp is alright. Even if they're stories of a kind you don't like, i.e. Sill. Yes. Sill is a very good example of a certain kind of Doctor Who. Yes. No, and you're absolutely right there, yes. And Mysterious Planet, again, is a very good example of a certain kind of Doctor Who. Oh, oh that's unquestionably true, yes. And Terror of the Vervoids, brilliantly, is a very good example of a certain kind of Doctor Who that doesn't yet exist. Right. Uh, and, and and may not ever, or already has, or something. Co comes from the same parallel universe as the Valyard. Ha! Yes. The universe of potentials that is being predicted by the Matrix as contained within the mind of Robert Holmes and Pip and Shane. And I'll tell you what, right? I would love it if Who nowadays tried something like this. Not 
a multi-part serial, which apparently is what we're getting for the four episodes that wherever it is of the next season. Uh, yeah, by the time it comes out, it's going to be a 10-minute <laughs> webisode. Yeah, yeah. Well, they say. But I would really be interested in... Um, I, I think there's been a lot of who in recent years, as we've discussed, that questions who the Doctor is. There's certainly been a lot of who. Certainly been a lot of who. Um, although not in the last, you know, it's slowed down a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, no, good point. But there has been a lot of who. Um, I think this would be the very little who, actually, that thinks about what the show is. Well, you know how much I love to talk about reflexivity. Yes, time and again. So, if Genesis of the Daleks is where the show started to turn around and look back at itself... Yeah. What's happened with Trial is we've reached a singularity where it's looked back so far that it can now look back on itself, looking back on itself. Right. And it's become this, uh, it's become an Ouroboros. It's an infinite feedback loop. It's growing beyond anything that's actually being put down in the script. It's become so reflexive that, like you say, it's become a microcosm. It's become a synecdoche. It, it, it's infinitely layered all the way down. You go, what, what is this modelling? And the, the only answer is Doctor Who. And you go, okay, but what is Doctor Who? And the only answer is Doctor Who. But I think the show has got less... I just don't think Moffat did as much reflectivity about the show. But you can't do it all the time. No, I know. It's just interesting that I think RTD understood something about the show as a phenomenon and was commenting on it sometimes in the stories. But I'm not sure. I think actually Moffat had just had so much self-confidence. The show had a right to be self-confident during his era. There were times when I felt Moffat very much did not understand the show he was making. And there were other times when I felt he understood it very acutely. And it's interesting how much he seemed to waver between those two extremes for me. I mean, something like the name of the Doctor is interesting because on the one hand, the name of the Doctor only has any significance in reference to the show as phenomena. Right. And at the same time, it was almost like if you really understood the show, you wouldn't do it. And, and of course, he doesn't do it in the end. No, indeed, he doesn't do it. And I, I, like I say, I, I'm not hating on him. I think he hit both extremes. But when he was very much not understanding the show, it wasn't simply in writing stories that didn't think about the fact they were Doctor Who. It was the opposite. It was writing stories that couldn't stop thinking about the fact they were Doctor Who, but but what they were characterising as Doctor Who wasn't. Yes. In all my travellings throughout the universe, I have battled against evil, against power-mad conspirators. I should have stayed here. The oldest civilization, decadent, degenerate, and rotten to the core. Power man conspirators, Daleks, Sontarans, Cybermen. They're still in the nursery compared to us. Ten million years of absolute power. That's what it takes to be really corrupt. I want to draw an analogy here that I think is really good. Go on. Which probably means it's not. Sure. The Matrix is a pocket universe of unfixed and fluid form, but which we occasionally delve into to see phantasmagorical, often non-sequitur images of nonetheless compelling escapades, which is formed not by the design of any one of its creators, but as an emergent process of the complete intellect of everyone who has ever worked on it, 
put together in one amalgam. The Matrix is Doctor Who. Yeah. I mean, I'm convinced. And the imagination of Robert Holmes and J&T and Eric Sayward and Pip and Jane and Mac Hulk and Terry Nation and Sidney Newman and Verity Lambert... And Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat. And Russell T. Davis and Chris Chibnall are all then churning around in every image it subsequently throws up forever. Yep. Okay, so I'm going to quote just a couple more of these fan thoughts. Like I say, there's there's no way to cover all of them. There's so many of them. Yep. So a user called Alan G. McWan, I think that's probably his real name, says, for my money, it's the single most underrated season in the history of Doctor Who, but to a certain extent, it only has itself or its script editor to blame. Had Trial appeared as one of JNT's little mid-season trilogies in a full season, I think it would be considerably better regarded than it is. As it is, it was the last great hope for the show at the time it aired, and it needed to do something other than pretty much what we were doing last year, but with broader comedy. The whole thing coming together because Eric Saywood thought in a fit of peak, so we're on trial, are we? And then making that the basis for the entire season is where I have issues with it. Had he actually sat back and thought to himself, if I consider that they may have a point, what are the core strengths of the show that I should focus on in putting it back on whatever track they want it on? And the very last thing he would have done is three months in a courtroom with a bunch of people in silly hats in order to play in the existing continuity sandpit. <sighs> and as, as a writer myself, yes, I said that. I just said those words. That is the mentality you sometimes have to take when you get notes from an editor. It's not to go, oh, well, they're saying this, are they? But to go, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking those criticisms in mind... What are the strengths that I need to focus and realign here to make them visible? Yes, I mean, I think um, you really have to not be darling about stuff yeah. when you're in a creative process where you're like, you don't have like sole creative control. And as we write back at the beginning, this kind of is a not killing of the darlings. This is J&T looking Michael Gray dead in the eye and going, you can't stop me, which might have been exactly the wrong tack to take. I mean, the show continues... Yes, it did. But that brings me on to, I guess, my final point of discussion, which is the aftermath of all of this. Mm -hmm. Because Eric Sayward has quit, Robert Holmes has died, JNT tries to leave the show and isn't allowed to leave, but is told that he has to pass on to Colin Baker that Colin Baker isn't required anymore. Something ends here and doesn't carry on. In my mind, the wilderness years began with that hiatus. It began when when someone sang the immortal words, Doctor in Distress. Something came back, but it wasn't Doctor Who as it had been. It wasn't Doctor Who as it had been, and Doctor Who as it had been was never coming back. No. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing. But as I've remarked before, you you can come back from a hiatus or a cancellation and be renewed, but it's never 
a good thing to want. It's never a thing that you would deliberately undertake. Yes. And I, I have basically been obviously convinced over time. Uh, obviously, as you've noted before, I now worry about the hiatus. Uh, or rather, I worry about the death of the show. Basically, over time, as you've been introduced to more classic Doctor Who and the history of the show, you've gone from talking about how resting the show might be really beneficial to it to a deep anxiety that it's going to be cancelled at any moment. Right, exactly. And crucially, I have become more correct. Well, as you see, I, I've reached the galaxy brain stage, which is just that Doctor Who is now eternal and forever, and let it be whatever it will be. You can't control it. It's bigger than anyone. The Matrix will carry on regardless of any one individual mind. Crocodiles all the way down. Brilliant. I think you've summed that up nicely. I've got one final thought from the forums, which I think is a good one to end on. A user called Kirkland Sicone, 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 sorry if I got that wrong, simply said... It's deeply crap, and I really like it. I mean, yeah. That's... We've now spoken for something like eight hours. Possibly that's all we needed to say. Yeah. <laughs> in, uh, in seven words, they said it all. So, final verdict. Plea of insanity? Yeah. <sighs> So, next. Next, we're going to take a month off. After that, we will be back on the anniversary, November the 23rd. Right. Um, uh, great. Cool. All of Trial of a Time Lord. We, did, we, we actually did cover all of Trial of a Time Lord. That really happened. That was almost as silly an idea as making it in the first place. And about as incoherent. And that's the end. Oh, hey, my time has just gone off to say it's time to finish recording. Amazing. Super. All right. I've been Renner. I've been Flick. And this has been Relative Digressions. Thanks for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at Who Digressions. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, and this is a production by Renner Robson and Felicia Parker. We'll be back in the future. There you have it, Sagacity. Four episodes all about Trial of a Time Lord. Clearly, they cannot be allowed to continue. I quite agree. Send them to Shada. Shada.